it's my very great pleasure to welcome Professor Bill Kelly as our speaker this week. Uh, I'm sure he needs no introduction at all, but um, the convention is to do that, so we will. And um, as you know, Bill is a Professor of Anthropology and Sumitomo Professor of Japanese Studies at Yale University. He's currently visiting with us at Nissan, which uh, is a great pleasure for us. And um, he, his field of research is generally on social and historical anthropology of Japan. And in the last two decades, much of his research has been focused on regional agrarian societies in Japan. But since 1996, he has moved to consideration of the history and present patterns of professional baseball in the cities of Osaka and Kobe. And his most recent publications, at least according to his web page, there may be others since, um, are two books, one in 2004, an edited book called Fanning the Flames, Fandoms and Consumer Culture in Contemporary Japan, and uh, in 2007, This Sporting Life, Sports and Body Culture in Modern Japan. And the Hanshin Tigers book is still in preparation. That's correct? Good. So that's the one, I guess, that we're getting parts of um, here. But there's also a reader in culture, history, and representation of Japan um, coming too. So um, Bill has a distinguished, of course, career. Um, having He earned his PhD in sociocultural anthropology from Brandeis and joined the faculty at Yale in 1980 and has served uh, various <laughs> senior positions there, chair for the Department of Anthropology, chair for the Council on East Asian Studies and director of undergraduate studies uh, for East Asian Studies. I won't go on, there are more, but I'm sure we're all looking forward to hearing today's presentation. Bill, thanks. Uh, thank you very much, Jenny, for the introduction. Uh, thanks particularly to Roger and to Ian for making it possible for my wife and I to find this very pleasant and uh, productive refuge for the last six weeks from the demands of uh, New Haven. Uh, the Nissan Institute is a truly remarkable place. It's one of the most important centers of Japan studies in the world. And I have learned enormously from the work of the staff and the remarkable students that it has produced over the years. And so I'm very grateful to, to be here. It's been very uh, stimulating. Last week, uh, Susan Farr gave a wonderful presentation about Harvard's encounter with Japan. And this week, I suppose, what I want to offer are some observations and ruminations about anthropology's encounter with Japan, which is a much shorter history than Harvard's encounter, which went back to the 1870s, uh, albeit uh, at least six de decades and more. Um, I'm actually enjoying a sabbatical year this academic year after a long time without one, and I've been using it to complete one project that Jenny mentioned, this ethnographic book on a uh, 
Japanese professional baseball team and to begin another which looks back over this 60-year trajectory of Japan anthropology. And I've actually talked about the baseball work on a number of occasions. I'm always happy to do so most recently at Brooks, but I've been trying to use the time here at the Nissan to, to begin to lay out this next project, and I want to move forward to that project, and that's really the focus of my remarks uh, today. Uh, my thinking is still in its early stages, and in taking up this topic with you, I am ignoring my own stern injunction to my students, which is don't inflict partially digested thoughts on a distinguished audience. Actually, I suppose I'm ignoring two injunctions to my students because I also lecture them never to begin a presentation with an apology. <laughs> um, but I've organized the remarks this afternoon around four, well, four points and three adjectives. I want to talk first a little bit about what's motivated me to besides I'm getting on in years, uh, to think back on the larger past of Japan anthropology. Um, and then to take up very briefly by example a couple of texts that hopefully some of you, maybe many of you in this room are familiar with, if not firsthand, at least secondhand or thirdhand, and that of course becomes a problem when things ossify into third-hand accounts, but to sort of think about how one might go back and begin to revisit um, texts uh, like this, and then uh, to talk briefly about the, the ways in which Japan anthropology has and must, with more vigor, um, contribute, speak to uh, what has happened in anthropology as a discipline. So. The project actually interests me for two reasons. One is actually as a way of looking forward to what Japan anthropology is doing and must be doing um, in the foreseeable future, and second, as a way of looking backwards, and academics, I suppose, always want to have it both ways. Uh, so let me talk about looking forward, looking backward. Um, this is a very exciting and challenging time to be in contemporary Japanese studies, even before um, the tragedies of 311 and the challenges that have unfolded from that. In parts of the academy, there may be doubts about Japan's declining geopolitical significance or falling course enrollments or whatever, but as a site of inquiry, um, it is ever more compelling and important and relevant. Um, and what makes all of this so is that things are so open-ended in Japanese society. Now, so much of Japanese society and, uh, and among the, the institutional arrangements um, that have sustained Japan for so long are now in question, fundamentally. Now, how can any analyst of human society not be drawn in deeply and challenged intellectually uh, to follow this? Now, many particular examples of this will be familiar to staff and students of this institute because you yourselves 
um, are at the forefront of these inquiries. It's not hard to generate a list of images of the recent publications of this institute and its scholars um, that demonstrate that. Claudia Sensei's work, going back even to the 1980s on bright flight, um, and how the breakdown of school-to-work transition is exposing um, competing pedagogies and alternate pathways in a system that is trying to redefine itself, primary, secondary education. Uh, Roger's research on the fundamental changes in tertiary education, evolving possibly into a third generation of structures through intended policies and unintended consequences, tracked in part uh, through the detailed fieldwork in a private university caught up um, in this uh, maelstrom. Um, the various contributors to the Rebek and Takenaka project who addressed the fast-changing social demography of a society that is faced with rapid aging and falling fertility and rising marriage age and dropping cross-generational co-residence and escalating divorce, all of which is thrown wide open from existing understandings of what is a family, what is marriage, what is the mix of private care and public welfare, um, and so on. I mean, matters that engage the full spectrum of social science in a virtue of some of these collaborations at uh, the Institute has been the openness um, of economists and sociologists and historians um, to perspectives of the anthropologists. That is, the Rebek and Takenaka volume is a good example, further heightened by the highly instructive comparison to uh, contemporary Italy. Um, so Nissan is setting the pace, but the same is true for anthropologists and Japan anthropology um, elsewhere. I suppose the only parenthesis I would add to these images is that the one thing that Nissan might do is get one of those American university presses that seem to invest much more in their covers um, to design uh, some, of, uh, some of the covers. But the same can be said about um, the energy in Japan anthropology in the continent, um, in uh, the U.S. Um, and in Australia and Japan itself. Of course, open-ended is a colloquial term for emergent and contingent. And these are the conditions of social life especially appropriate for anthropology, for our commitments to situated action and to extended and intensive and direct engagements of people that can tease out precisely the, the, the web of forces that compel or constrain or induce people um, into uh, the new directions that people are looking at. At Katharina's um, exploration of the conditions and the constraints of single motherhood, for example, is an, for instance, is an example um, of how a kind of sustained and intensive uh, focus on the complex of logics um, that create certain or that make certain, that valorize certain pathways that, that move people in certain directions without forcing them in directions is an example of the the ethnographic touch um, on some of these uh, problems because all of this um, precedes the, the challenges to Japan and to Japan anthropology post 
3.11, rebuilding a social fabric, um, recovering economic livelihoods, reimagining regional society. What is to be the nature of civil society post 3.11? What is a plausible public infrastructure? These and a host of other issues make looking forward and make Japan anthropology, and especially, as I say, exciting and relevant um, part of the world and part of the discipline to be working on. Indeed, it's so demanding and so rewarding to look forward that we must wonder why look back. Uh, what began, I mean, this actually began as a, as a pedagogical challenge, that is, which is why and how and to what extent, given all this, um, should I be instructing my students, especially postgraduate students, the new apprentice professionals, um, in our disciplinary past? Um, of course, it's a question at several levels. I mean, just to, to get you to wrap one's head around just the, 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 the ethnographies that have come out in the last two or three years, how much further can we really, can we really go back? It's a question at several levels. I teach a first-year seminar to postgraduates in the history of social-cultural anthropology. That is certainly a challenge. But the project now that I'm talking about today is more particularly located within and about Japan anthropology. And here there are, are two challenges. One is a matter of numbers, and the other is a matter of stereotypes. As the historical depth and the substantive breadth of anthropological scholarship are frequently underestimated by students coming into the field, by our non Japan colleagues, even by Japan anthropologists themselves. I'm not sure how these numbers, for instance, would compare to Japan history or Japan literature, but they are usually much larger than people imagine. Just taking, for instance, ignoring the journal articles, ignoring the chapters, the edited volumes, and so on, just taking the, the doctoral dissertations that have been done within anthropology in English, um, over the last 60 years, um, we're now over 320, 330, and looking at not the books in Japan anthropology, but the ethnographic monographs um, on, uh, on, on Japan topics, uh, we're well uh, 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 approaching uh, uh, 200. Um, these numbers are impressive and depressing in equal measure. Now, wow, that's, that's a lot of work that's going on, and in the next breath, oh my goodness, do I really have to read all that stuff? I just don't have time for that. Um, it's a particularly sort of uh, 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 mixed emotions that young professionals uh, must feel. So that numbers, kind of looking backwards, constitute a challenge to working on a project, developing a project um, like this. The second issue, though, is a matter of stereotypes, and stereotypes about the disciplinary past as well as stereotypes about Japan's past. Um, the all-too-frequent dodge of dismissing the disciplinary past as irrelevant or worse an embarrassment to understanding today. Now, some of this is generic to any field, the kind of LPFR latest published first read principle is regnant in many of the fields we work. But some of it is cast in a distinctive idiom in Japan anthropology, a sense 
that one gets from reading certain studies or the presentation of certain studies that a current generation of Japan anthropology is correcting the failures of its predecessors and finally paying attention to the diverse and the marginal, finally dislocating the Sarimandaksa, finally bringing class back in, finally acknowledging multi-ethnic Japan. These are four recent studies by actually personal friends and scholars whom I admire enormously. I'm somewhat dismayed in each case, though, to see the ways in which this work um, is framed. It's very hard to, to read that text, but Yoshio Sugimoto, one of the most important scholars, his work with Trans-Pacific Press, his own volumes over the years have been absolutely essential to the development of Japan studies. I was dismayed to read the first paragraph of the first page of his introductory uh, 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 chapter in this volume about an unacknowledged paradigm shift and a dramatic shift in the beginning of the 21st century, finally breaking from this notion of a homogenous society now to diversity and differentiation and getting over this monocultural society image that he says is not through any credit to the scholars who still are being sort of kicked and dragged into this new paradigm, but rather uh, public perceptions of structural changes. The problem is that this becomes a brief for dismissing the past um, and the scholarship about that to sort of sweep it under the carpet before the new guests arrive. Is the notion of a dawn of intellectual enlightenment is never a fixed historical moment, but rather a constantly moving horizon that happens to be occurring just at the moment that a particular author is putting pen to paper or fingers to keyboard, I suppose, today. It seems to display at least three of the seven deadly scholarly sins, amnesia, myopia, and sloth. Uh, in fact, there was nothing static, there was nothing straightforward, there was nothing complete in the forms and the force of the social formation that anthropologists in the second half of the 20th century were trying to understand and analyze. <coughs> Excuse me. And by and, large, by and large, they recognize this, and they use their field research and their ethnographic writing to grapple with a social order that was, in a phrase that I used 20 years ago, co-optive, complicit, and contested. Uh, so, but to hope for a responsible sort of engagement with our disciplinary past is not to demand uncritical adulation and should never be a petulant complaint about or a curmudgeonly boast to the irreverent younger scholars been there, done that. Um, as looking backwards is a joint responsibility of teacher and student, or rather scholar, mentors, and apprentice scholars. It's not enough to uh, lecture new Japan anthropologists or even more senior colleagues, that you must or even read, should read all of these lists of dissertations or monographs, but rather you have to show why it is instructive uh, to do so. And that's really what got me involved in this project. 
Um, there are a number of ways in which we can develop and retain, it seems to me, a critical appreciation of the past, and that's what I'm trying to do in this larger project. Uh, one of these ways, especially necessary in our discipline of anthropology, um, is to revisit some of the exemplary ethnographic monographs and to read them against the rather cardboard images or quick and dirty uses that they have more recently been given. That is, ethnographic monographs are not all that we as anthropologists write, but they are at the core of our contribution because they're both a form of writing and a way of reasoning. As the conventions of ethnographies have always been loose, variation has always been the norm, there's been much change over time in expository logic and rhetorical tone, but what most dissertation researchers end up writing bears a family resemblance um, to what earlier cohorts have and have been expected to produce, and there is a place for a multi-generational family portrait of our monographs that includes predecessors in ways that avoid the extremes of treating them as skeletons in the closet on the one hand or as ancestral ehi tablets on the other. Uh, so you know, the point is to, to look at these again to see if there is enough insight to inspire students to develop a fuller historical uh, consciousness uh, 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 about them. Um, so what I'd like to suggest by way of uh, two very quick examples are some comments on uh, two of the earlier uh, monographs, um, beginning with Ezra Vogel's Japan's New Middle Class. The last slide um, in Susan's presentation last week was a picture of Prime Minister Koizumi, uh, then Prime Minister Koizumi, shaking hands with a smiling Ezra Vogel. And Ezra Vogel figured in her talk as the other great entrepreneur of Japan studies at Harvard over the decades, overlapping with and following Edmund Reischauer. Um, but he has also a scholarly influence in the field that I think is far more important to most of us um, than his entrepreneurialship. Um, Ezra Vogel's study was published in 1963. It's been a convenient foil for some time to characterize the decades during which many of us were all complicit in burnishing an image of a mass middle-class society and focusing on or being fixated with a few actor types, the Saradiman and his compliant um, housewife uh, spouse, Hiroshi and David, our, our friends, again, I was dismayed to read the opening to their book on class in Japan, a very fine and important volume that uses Vogel as a foil um, in this way, and uh, it's hard to read the, the quote, but you can get from the underlying phrases, it's my underlining, the sense in which the role in which a book like this, a rather complicated uh, a monograph, has come to play. It's not quite the way I read the book and read the book uh, now. It's origins, um, first of all, 
um, were rather modest and unpromising, as was Ezra's own uh, beginnings in Japan studies. Um, both Ezra and Suzanne have always readily conceded that um, they began with limited qualifications um, and very narrow aims. Um, they had no foreign experience. They had studied very little formal anthropology. They had never studied about Japan. They knew no Japanese. It started with a warning um, to Ezra from the distinguished Harvard sociologist Florence Kluckholm back in 1957 as Ezra was finishing his doctoral dissertation in social relations. And he was also finishing a three-year stint working as a research assistant for Florence Kluckholm. And her parting words uh, to Ezra and his memory was, Ezra, you are terribly provincial. You've never lived in another culture. How could you possibly understand American society without living in another society. Before you settle down to teaching, you've got to go abroad to a very different place and live and soak up the culture. Ezra was quite shaken by this final advice from his boss. Um, he turned to an older friend and mentor, William Caudle, um, for advice about whether to go, where to go. Caudle, not surprisingly, promoted Japan. Um, Ezra talked to Suzanne, who was a psychiatric social work professional, took a quick reading course from John Pelzell, a few language lessons from fellow graduate students from Japan that included Yoshishimizu, who went on to be the preeminent art historian of his cohort. And the two of them set off the next year for Tokyo with their one-year-old boy, uh, David. Stephen hadn't come along yet. And what Ezra produced, and really Ezra and Suzanne, from those two years of joint postdoc research was not only unexpected, um, given these initial circumstances, but it was also something quite different um, from what he and Suzanne initially intended. He had just finished his dissertation um, with a 570-page work on the marital relationship of parents and the emotionally disturbed child um, that drew on his participation in a study that Florence Kluckholm and others had done in Boston um, that was trying to compare normal families with those with a mentally ill member uh, by comparing um, uh, Irish-American, um, uh, Italian-American, and Anglo-American samples. Suzanne had a lot of experience interviewing because she was psychiatric social work. Um, and essentially, this project was just to go to Japan and add to the sample, do the same thing um, in Tokyo. And their personal uh, and intellectual connections, with one exception, um, reinforced this. It was Florence who arranged the funding, Bill Caudle, who was doing very important work on Japanese child socialization research. Um, Caudle and his wife met the Vogels at Haneda Airport and introduced them to a very good friend of his, Doi Takio, um, who arranged for them to rent a house next to Doi's uh, house um, in Tokyo. Um, after months of intensive language training, Doi helped them to locate six families with normal children and an equal number with uh, an emotionally disturbed child and to meet them once a week for a year. <clears throat> 
The plan was that Ezra was going to interview the husband fathers um, and Suzanne was going to interview the wife mothers. They did continue this routine uh, for the first uh, year, but then they themselves moved into the Mamachi neighborhood where the families lived and spent the second year doing what any anthropologist would recognize as intensive, more situated participant observation. And by the time the research was completed, or well before the research was completed, they had scrapped the normal disturbed fulcrum, they avoided a U.S.-Japan comparison, and they came to realize that there was another socioeconomic difference of much greater local force, new middle class versus old middle class. It took some intellectual courage, given the background uh, of the study uh, to date. One non-psychological uh, influence um, that may have been critical was just before they left Cambridge, um, Ronald Dorr, who was visiting at Harvard, gave Ezra a preview copy of City Life in Japan, which he took with him in manuscript uh, to Tokyo. <coughs> The title of the book um, is the topic that emerged, Japan's New Middle Class. For the Vogels then, it was more ethnographic discovery than analytical precipitate. That is, through the 1950s, they argued the characters of cities, indeed popular aspirations, the institutional shape of the society itself, were increasingly shaped by large companies and their white-collar employees. Mamachi, their residential location was a nondescript neighborhood of modest, single-family homes, small shops, local services, a few small factories on the edge of metropolitan Tokyo, is actually in Ichikawa, in Chiba, increasingly home to a new middle class of white-collar Saruriman and their families. This emergent class fraction was co-present with the still dominant socioeconomic formation of a composite old middle class that included successful independent businessmen running family enterprises, fewer numbers of independent uh, professionals like doctors and dentists and small shopkeepers and small company workers, as one might expect. Despite using what was becoming an increasingly popular uh, folk term, new middle class, it wasn't really an ethnography of Sarimen. We have to wait 10 years for that, for Orlean's study of Weta Bank. Rather, it was about the emerging attractions and expanding opportunities for large organizations, salaried work, and about its class entailments and social consequences for individuals, uh, for family relationships, for a gendered division of labor, for residential and social institutions. Uh, he focused on what we would call an emergent socioeconomic class, but he recognized that it was based in the conditions of large organization employment, rather, as many sociologists would presume, in income and occupation per se, as in workplace rather than job type. Um, and this found expression in lifestyle standards and aspirations, as being a sarimant, um, as well as doing a sarimant. And secondly, um, as the subtitle uh, suggested, he appreciated more than previous analysts this emerging institutional linkage between family and schooling and workplace organization. Of course, the Sardiman as a socioeconomic type um, had been around for a half century, but just as there were markets before capitalism, the type preceded its 
typification and the moment when it began to reshape the institutional contours of the society. And this is what um, was beginning in the 1950s and which the Vogels sensed in the neighborhood and in the ongoing reorganization of its everyday life. Along with that, it seems to me, Vogel pursued another kind of articulation between the social and the cultural and the psychological, both in terms of institutions and also in terms of individual dynamics. And this, too, um, separated him from the more strongly sociological line of Ronald Dore um, and the more cultural, psychological line of George DeVos. Um, salary, um, as culturally valorized and as affectively motivating, had a particular social location that comes out um, in the text itself. Specific entailments for support and security and mobility um, and merit. He showed he was, uh, they were aware of how the entrance exams were shaping student dispositions as well as school structures. And they showed how the family formed at the intersection of these workplace and school demands and desires resulting in certain patterns of domestic separate spheres and gender division of labor and mother-child dynamics and also finally how all of these had contingent effects on local community life and local economy. It wasn't about the Sadriman. It was about the implotment of Sadriman um, in these two different these two different nexus. So the result was not so much a static structural analysis as a processual systemic um, analysis. Finally, um, as he expressed in the final section of the book, he sensed not a displacement of class positions going on, not an incitement of class antagonism. It wasn't new middle class versus old middle class, middle class versus working class, but a diffusion of desire, a co-optation of desires was the class dynamic going on. We have to remember that it certainly wasn't clear in 1958, 1959, when they were in Mamachi, that this would in fact be the case. As the uncertain but often heavy-handed efforts of conservative LDP uh, confronting labor strife and vibrant oppositional politics actually presaged alternative sort of social outcomes uh, to this uh, to this process. But the 1960s um, took a very different turn, and there was such a diffusion and co-optation as lifestyle typification, not as life chance reality. And 20 years later, um, Vogel's formulation was recognizable to me in understanding the mainstream orientation of farmers that I met in rural Shonai, um, as well as the increasingly diverse uh, ethnographic literature of those subsequent uh, uh, decades. Now, I don't want to overstate um, the prescience of the monograph, and to be sure, when we read it closely, we also um, see that its coverage and its expository logic were unbalanced. It shows traces of the original research intent and the psychocultural premises of the time. Equally important, Vogel 
underplayed the problem of consciousness. That is, who was recognizing or misrecognizing what was going on. Although, um, he and Suzanne made up for that, I think, in 10-year and then 30-year update essays that were appended to subsequent uh, editions. Um, the titles of the updates themselves, Beyond Salary um, in 1973 and Beyond Success, their 1993 essay, indexed their recognition of how soon and how uneasily um, reservations, disenchantments, heterodoxical choices were sapping um, the directive force and the earlier appeal um, of this lifeway. Nonetheless, it was, we might say, organically astute in the logic of its organization. You read the book and see the movement from work to school to family to community um, in the elaboration of topics. And the way he characterized this new middle class as cultural typification as well as economic imperative and demonstrating the institutional nexus that were channeling aspirations and organizing a diversity in much of the ethnographic and analytical work um, of the next three decades substantiated um, this orientation. Their lineages of family studies, of schooling studies, of workplace studies, of gender studies, of residential community studies over those decades, all of which um, pass through Vogel. And to the extent that we are in analogous circumstances today, um, it remains an instructive text. Uh, let me turn a bit more briefly to a second uh, example, um, another iconic uh, text of the earlier uh, period. Um, came out 10 years after uh, Ezra Vogel, 1973, based on research 1968-1969. There was precisely a decade between the two, the research um, and the writing. And it has come to be taken, often dismissed, as the paradigmatic study of white uh, male, uh, male white-collar company men um, and as an unproblematic modeling of Japanese culture, corporate culture, around this figure. Now, as I suggested, the, the white collar um, on the cover of Vogel's book was misleading. It was misleading doubly because it was really high kata. Um, it wasn't the white collar of the time. But it was misleading because they didn't actually study um, the white collar offices um, to which the husbands and the fathers and the community residents were commuting, but rather the neighborhood schools, families from which they ventured out. And as many of you know, from the early 50s, at least through the mid-1970s, uh, the residential unit, whether it was the rural village or the urban neighborhood, was the common unit of field observation and research analysis, although there were always exceptions from the beginning. John Pelzell did a fascinating dissertation, unfortunately not published, about smelting uh, uh, operations and shops in Kawasaki. John Singleton had profiled a middle school in the early 1960s. Bob Cole was two years ahead of Rolene in his participant observation of blue-collar work in a Tokyo die-casting plant. Rodney Clark, um, Ronald Houck in uh, a corrugated box manufacturing company and with Nishijin Weavers respectively were beginning dissertation fieldwork around the same time. But this was still something of a minority as a field site. Rolene spent two years, as I said, in 68, 69, 
studying a large regional bank in northern Kyushu um, to which she gave the pseudonym um, Weida Ginko or Weida Gin. Um, it had about 3,000 employees um, in 120, a large headquarters and 120 branches um, across the metropolitan area. 2,000 of the 3,000 were males. Uh, banking was aggressively retail at the time and remained so um, and depended on a sales force of savings collectors and loan officers who fanned across the city um, from the branches every day in a relentless and highly competitive um, search for business. Um, this is a, a, a rendition of, of, of the table of contents. He defined his approach in several passages as, in his word, trying to see way to bank as his members see it. Um, and through this question of, of what and how um, way to bank meant to its members, he was trying to get at the more general question of what large work organization in Japan meant um, to its members. And to do this, um, the book... Is, is trying to, to, uh, to, to account for Weida Bank as both a social organization with a cultural ideology. That is a corporate culture. It had some official articulated ideals about what it should be. Um, and as a social structure, there were characteristic arrangements of people within that uh, organization um, in, in, in physical place and in metaphorical uh, position. And the book is structured so it oscillated back and forth, chapter by chapter, um, through the social structure and the cultural ideology. I think Rolene is sometimes a bit misleading on this question of ideology and has created um, particular readings of the book subsequently. Generally, he implied that it could be summed up as the ideal um, of harmony, the motif of the company as one big happy family. This is a, a, a Nengajo from, uh, from a particular branch. They don't look particularly happy, but <laughs> certainly the, the message that was most commonly taken by the readers. Um, and the book title seems to pose an apparent contradiction between this ideology of harmony um, and business realities, the strength of the corporation otherwise. But I think one can also read it to suggest a different meaning of the title. That is, Wade Gein's ideology um, is the title of the book. The, the, the ideals of the bank as an organization are both halves of the title, harmony and strength, corporate uh, company harmony and business strength. That is, business expansion and profit-seeking may be economic goals, but they were also very much cultural values, organizational aims, formally articulated and imposed um, on it, the company uh, membership. In some ways, um, these organizations aims could be made compatible, but in other ways they were often quite incompatible. And it's obvious from a full reading of the book that this combination embodied a basic sort of tension and ambivalence um, that pervaded um, that organization and the whole organizational form. Um, the, whole, the high value placed on good relations in the work group and the equally important value um, on locating and promoting able people. There's a tension between hierarchy and community. A lot of talk about daikazoku um, in the company literature 
literature, but equally on Seixin training, um, which is actually Rolin's original topic and his point of entry, the training institute, not the bank um, itself. Uh, And the Seixin training was intended precisely to hone and winnow the fiercely competitive spirit of the sales force that was needed and desired. Waiter Bank as a social structure also was a fairly complex um, geometry. Rolin referred to a circle, a circle of, 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 uh, of community and a pyramid as the hierarchical distinctions of authority as one moved up through the ranks to Boucho um, and so on. But more precisely, you really have to add a third geometrical overlay to this uh, metaphor um, of social structure uh, because not only was it a circle of members, the Shayin, an attempt to be undifferentiated, um, and not only was it a triangle of ranks um, through which some people moved and others were pushed out of the triangle um, with seniority, or there was an attempt, to, it was like the Israeli army, they were trying to mute the ranks, um, everybody wear certain uniforms, uh, mute the insignias, but you could never really fully uh, mute those ranks, but it was also um, a rectangle because it was structured by um, a, a, a bottom-up uh, entry, of course, broad age grades, um, and not only things like pay and benefits, um, but it served as a geometry for creating the senior-junior dyadic ties um, that were further um, vectors of social relationships in the bank. So the social structure, organizational form, um, was this bounded community of work, a very centripetal kind of uh, force, um, overlaid by a very competitive hierarchy of ranks, a very centrifugal um, force, and a non-competitive vertical hierarchy of seniority, of age grades. We had these countervailing centripetal and centrifugal vectors that paralleled um, this cultural tension between harmony um, and strength. And On the one hand, it was this very homogenizing. On the other hand, it was this very differentiating. These tensions had to be mediated. Um, And the ethnography um, is also, I think, um, instructive in the ways it gets at the mechanisms of mediation, the ways in which consent, um, not consensus, um, was managed. In, in part, the tensions were mediated by the particular dynamics of the small work group units that tended to be branches rather than points on an assembly line, and the vertical dyadic ties. In part, the contradictions were avoided by constant shifts throughout the day in the way people literally related one to another. You could have a a, a morning meeting that displayed proximically um, the vertical hierarchy, um, uh, uh, the rankings um, of the group. Uh, People would go into their their business of dealing with uh, uh, the the people coming to the bank, and it would be a different arrangement of personnel. I mean, physically, you were moving your body, you were relating to people, using different language to enact um, the different ways in which this this, this company um, uh, was structured. At the end of the day, everybody pulled their, their chairs together in a circle um, and had a very different kind of afternoon meeting to reflect a different sort of geometry of organization. So that was part of the ways in which um, contradictions were compartmentalized. And in part, bank ideology diffused the contradictions through the ambiguities of a canopy of symbols that were conveyed through morning meetings and weekly newsletters and periodic speeches and assemblies that induced a kind of politics of 
public dissimulation uh, on the part of the employees. And in his final remarks, the last couple pages, Rowling says the book is a sustained treatment of how a particular company arrives at the degree of integration it does. And what seems to me is it was most perceptive of Rowling is that he's not settling for um, a simple binary of consent um, and coercion, as he enumerates multiple ways um, in which people were frustrated and dissatisfied. The high school graduates um, were angry because their chances for advancement were less. The younger men were impatient for the older men to, to move up or move out. The older men um, were resentful for being passed over. There were complaints about the company apartments and the dormitories and anxieties about ever, ever finding affordable housing, suspicions of, of men who think they were unjustly transferred to remote minor branches, female employees feeling they were taken advantage of in work, uh, on and on. They, you know, he was not uh, unattuned, unaware, and folded this into the analysis. It made the problem of why this organization work um, even more um, uh, intriguing and even more complicated. He does claim that at that moment, for that organization, despite the, the tension-laden ideology, despite the centrifugal and centripetal social structure, despite this wide range of, of grumbling and dissatisfaction, the employees, by and large, um, acceded to its demands with equanimity, unpersuaded by its more grandiose rhetoric, but finding sufficient reward and even sources of satisfaction among its daily routines. But the overall message um, is how contingent um, was that acceptance, how sort of incomplete, how it was based on conditions of the historical moment, 1968-1979, how it was managed, one might say finessed, by these several features of the bank, uh, the bank structure. But in outlining the conditions for an organization that was, uh, for the time being, um, somewhat harmonious and rather profitable. He was also providing an analytic for appreciating the ways in which things could go wrong. Um, and we can see how, uh, I mean, maybe harmony and strength works, or works in that case. Um, but there is a long um, literature of workplaces and work routines and work re relations now from before um, uh, rolling to afterwards, um, and reading it in terms in the context of this other work. We can see how the, the push-pull geometry and the orchestration of routines and symbolic atmospherics worked less effectively in Rodney Clark's Marumaru Box Company um, and even less effectively in James Roberson's Shintani Metals um, uh, factory um, and were completely dysfunctional um, in Kenneth Skinner's um, second-tier public agency, a dissertation that uh, was unfortunately never published but certainly um, pays a, a, a careful read. That is, it was a template that was capable of providing success and satisfaction under certain conditions. Um, and one can appreciate the power of its typification, but that power was 
hard-earned and incomplete and highly contingent, just as will be um, any future corporate organizational template that may emerge from the current um, roilings of enterprise structure and human capital development and the engineering of secure and insecure employment opportunities that people are discovering and writing about and analyzing um, at the present time. Um, these two monographs and a great many more, um, including a number of dissertations like Skinner's that for a variety of circumstances never got published in book form, um, repay careful critical study for anybody who wants to understand what's going on um, at the present. Um, but they're valuable as much for their intertextual linkages and their and, and, and links, lineages, um, as for their textual arguments. And another part of the project has to not just look at a couple of key works in the past, but also develop sort of the logics of discovery and connections among some of these works in order to see the ways in which this ethnographic archive can really contribute to a portrait of Japan um, over that uh, half, half century. They aren't simple linear changes. But as I say, another part of this project is to revisit these. Um, it's also important because it brings me to my, my, final, my third point and my third adjective, modern, because it's in making these connections, I think, that we can most directly engage with our colleagues in the wider discipline of sociocultural uh, anthropology. As in a nutshell, my argument there is that in the last several decades, um, the central agenda of anthropology um, has gone from long being focused on the many ways of being human um, to being focused on the many ways of being modern. Um, and in so doing, it is belatedly catching up to Japan anthropology. Um, from the 1990s on, um, Bruce Naft, uh, Marshall Solins, uh, James Ferguson, Danny Miller, uh, Johannes Fabian, the Komarovs, I mean, two anthropologists, these are familiar names, these are important names, um, have been per persuasively detailing, recovering uh, modernity and subjecting it to fresh critical appraisal within uh, the discipline of anthropology. It was anthropology's response to the challenge of postmodernism, a very strong suit in the 1980s and overplayed hand by the 1990s. And much of what we have done in the discipline since then, even under the guise of globalization or post-colonial anthropology or studies of neoliberalism, fall within this larger rubric, this shift um, in the center of intellectual gravity within the discipline. So we talk about um, alternative modernities and vernacular modernities and regional modernities and multiple modernities and other modernities and discrepant modernities and parallel modernities. These are all concepts and titles and subtitles of books that um, have reshaped shaped the discipline's agenda over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. And this babble of terms masks an underlying shared focus, which in effect is our discipline's project to relativize modernity um, as a century ago, it was our project to relativize culture. 
So Melanesian, African, Chinese, Latin American, Caribbean, post-socialist modernities and more have become the new rubric for confronting, as Bruce Nuff put it in that that volume whose cover I just showed, how it is that people in the world now share so much in common at the same time that they are as differentiated, diverse, and even more unequal as they were before. Uh, To me, that's rather pallid phrasing. I get the point. I'd rather put it as how idioms of improvement and institutions of development and desire for self-fashioning can channel desires and synchronize um, efforts while producing such discrepant and unequal uh, income uh, uh, outcomes. There's much that the anthropology of Japan has contributed to the wider discipline. To me, most significantly is that we have provided the most complete account that the discipline has from any world region of an anthropology of modernity. Those 320-some dissertations and those 170-some ethnographies and several thousand um, articles over six decades, um, Japan anthropologists have created a corpus of critical ethnography and analytical modeling and theoretical musings on the nature of modernity that is unrivaled. Um, in the discipline over those 60 years. It's quite an accomplishment. I don't think that we've fully comprehended and we certainly haven't done adequate justice um, to what um, we have created. Of course, Japan anthropology has been out of step um, with the dominant tastes and dominating agendas uh, of our discipline at many moments. But I think we have more often been ahead rather than behind. Perhaps we were too prescient for our own good. Um, By the time Marshall Solon said goodbye to Trice Trope in 1993 and announced that henceforth anthropology was to be about, in his phrase, the indigenization of modernity, this was ancient history in Japan anthropology. Of course, modernity in the anthropology of Japan is not a stable concept, it's not a consensus of understanding, but it has been, sort of Frank Kermode's notion, our central regulative fiction, um, organizing and bounding much of our internal debates and determining our connections um, to other scholarship um, and to public talk in Japan and Euro-America. I have my own notions of this Japanese vernacular of modern life that I've tried to express um, elsewhere. Um, but which turn on this sort of systematic articulation of national institutional fields that standardize and manage social differences and shape aspirations through a set of life course typifications. But not everyone agrees, and there is much discussion and debate around as um, is shaped by this regulative fiction, which has now become the larger regulative fiction um, of the discipline. I've long felt um, that early works like Japan's New Middle Class and For Harmony and Strength um, have been foundational in establishing modernity as the regulative fiction of Japan anthropology and that much of our work since then and continues to develop and debate um, within this problematic. Um, These and many other monographs are not timeless classics, um, but they remain timely texts um, holding us to our unfinished business. We need to know our own, our past for 
our own work ahead, but also to bring it more forcefully and more usefully to the attention and to the agenda of the wider discipline. I thank you very much for your attention, and uh, we look forward to any commentary.